there's an old saying, a promise is a promise. It, 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 it kind of means promises are meant to be kept, right? But however, as we think about our current era, it seems like a promise is not really a promise because promises are very seldom kept, aren't they? Uh, it's hard to count on anything anymore. People make promises, they don't keep them. Uh, and people sort of have come to expect promises to be broken. Well, throughout the book of Hebrews, as we've been uh, studying, and it's great to be back. I know it's been a couple weeks since we were in the book of Hebrews. Really appreciate Pastor John filling in and Pastor Brad the week before that. And it's just so great to have uh, folks uh, in the church body and in the community that can, uh, can step in when I'm out of pocket. But um, if you think back to our study through the book of Hebrews, the writer throughout the whole letter is really making the case that believers should continue to trust God even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And he uses several exhortations and illustrations and even some warnings, some strong warnings, we've looked at three so far, uh, to make that case that you should keep trusting God. The blessings of perseverance far outweigh, he says, the temporal relief that might come with, with giving up. And we, when we get to the last half of chapter 6, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, uh, the author's argument turns to the subject of God's promises. We should stand firm in the faith because God has promised great blessings in the future. A promise can, can be a powerful motivator. And I want to illustrate this notion of the motivation of a promise by uh, going back to a, a story uh, out of Asia, the story of Hachiko. Hachiko was a lovable Akita puppy. And maybe you've heard this story, but every, ye every day for nine years until his death, Hachi, as his owner called him, sat in the same place at the same time at the same train station in uh, Tokyo, waiting for his master and dear friend, a professor at the University of Tokyo. He would walk with him in the mornings to the train station. The professor would get on the train. The dog would go home. At the right time every day, he would come back and meet his professor, his, his master, the professor from the University of Tokyo as he returned on the, uh, on the train. But he did this for nine years, even after his master had died unexpectedly while giving a lecture at work. Nine years he came, and his master never returned. In fact, uh, they, they sort of memorialized this. He, at first, it was really tough for Hachi because he'd only been doing this for less than two years when his master died. And so when he would show up every day and, and, and wait and, and his master wouldn't show up, you know, the people nearby, the train station workers, the peddlers and others would sort of try to shoo him off and think he was a stray dog wondering, what, what are you doing? Get out of here, get out of here. But he continued coming despite everything. And eventually they memorialized uh, Hachi's uh, incredible love and dedication to his master. Nine years he did that after he died uh, with a statue outside the uh, school there at the University of Tokyo. Now fast forward to 2009 and in the U.S. the, the, uh, the movie A Dog's Tale starring Richard Gere memorialized this. It's sort of an American adaptation. It sort of told the story, same basic 
aspects of the story uh, with an American flair to it. So Richard Gere played Professor Parker Wilson, uh, and his wife, Kate Wilson, was played by Joan Allen, and then Jason Alexander played the train station master, Carl Bolins. And I want to show you a short, uh, couple of short clips here just to sort of set the stage as we think about promises, promises. This first clip is less than a minute, and it's, it's, it shows Jason Alexander, the train station manager, uh, Carl, uh, telling Hachi that he doesn't have to wait anymore because his best friend, Professor Wilson, is not coming back. And, you know, even just watching these clips, if, having seen the movie, it, it really almost brings tears to your eyes. Very touching. He said, you don't have to wait anymore. He's not coming back. And then he said, all right, Hachi, you do what you have to do. And that was right after he died. Now fast forward nine years. Actually, in the movie, it's almost ten years. And the widow, Kate Wilson, has moved on. She's moved away for years and years. She decides after ten years to come back and visit her late husband's grave, not knowing that for these past ten years, Hachi whom she had given away after he died because she couldn't care for him, uh, was continuing to come back. So this next scene, again, about a little over a minute, or a little, I'm sorry, a little over two minutes, shows uh, an older Hachi, ten years later, doing his daily thing, coming to meet his master at the train station at the appointed time. And then uh, Kate shows up and is reunited with their dog. By now, everyone at the train station knows him and loves him. The hot dog vendor, the train station manager, other travelers. This has been going on for 10 years. They're used to having him there. And then the widow shows up, visiting for the first time in years and years.
That's the hot dog vendor. Train station manager. Alright, can I wait with you till the next train? You know, if only we had the faith of a loyal dog like Hachi. His master promised to return, so he faithfully waited day after day. But sadly, we, we give up too soon. We give in to our fears. We forget God's promises. And that's precisely what the believers in the late 60s AD were in danger of doing. And the reason the writer wrote them this book of Hebrews, because they were giving into their fears. They were forgetting God's promises. They were giving up. We said the theme of this study is unshakable faith, trusting God in trying times. And in the passage today, Hebrews chapter 6, if you want to turn there, the writer appeals to one of the exceedingly great and precious promises, as, the, as Peter would put it in 2 Peter chapter 1, to encourage those early first century believers who were facing persecution, not to give up. Keep on waiting. God's promise is secure. Let me ask you, what promises are you holding on to as you navigate these unsettling waters of our day? What promises are you holding on to as you wait for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to come back? I want to break up this passage into th to three sections. The first section, the first three verses, if you want to look at verse 13, deals with the Abrahamic promise. That's the promise that the writer is appealing to. Now, the author frequently appeals to Abraham throughout this letter because he's writing to Jews who had converted to Christianity. They had trusted in Christ and Him alone as their only hope for salvation. But obviously, being Jews, they understood uh, all of the Old Testament teaching about Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He was revered and honored and respected by Jews. And, of course, that included these Jews who had now become Christians. They understood the, the foundational promise, really, to all the world that was given uh, to Abraham. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. He begins, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So the writer is presenting Abraham as a, as a very encouraging and supreme example of one who was strong in the faith, strong in his patience, waiting for the Lord. God promised Abraham many descendants back in Genesis 12. But of course, you know the story. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. And yet Abraham patiently endured, trusting God. Uh, and he eventually obtained the promise. Look at verse 15. And so after he had patiently endured, what? He obtained the promise. 
The writer of Hebrews is calling us to do what God called Abraham to do, to keep trusting God. We too need to continue to trust and obey, even though it may look sometimes as though perseverance is going to result in tragedy. And that's what happened with Abraham and Isaac. You, you remember the story. Many years after God's initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, God had fulfilled His promise of a son, and then God instructs Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son, Isaac. If you go back to verse 14, uh, the promise that God is referring to here is the promise that God gave Abraham in, in sort of reiterating, repeating the original promise after the incident on Mount Moriah. Abraham trusted God to fulfill his former promise in Genesis 12, where he would have many descendants, even though he had then subsequently called him to put Isaac to death. So he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. In fact, if you go back and read the story in Genesis 22, you find that when they traveled all that distance, at one point he leaves all of his servants and traveling companions at the bottom, and he takes Isaac, and he says to them, you guys wait here, this is a paraphrase, he says, you guys wait here, the lad and I will go yonder for the sacrifice, and we will return. See, Abraham knew God was going to provide. Somehow he didn't know how. He didn't know the details. And, of course, you know the story. Um, if you look at it, in fact, let me just read part of it from Genesis 22 to give you the context. So they've gone all the way up. He's laid Isaac on the altar, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind them was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and looked, took the ram and offered it up for the burnt offering instead of his son. Clear picture of the atoning work of our Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Abraham called the name of the place, uh, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide, is the way it is in English. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And here's where he reiterates, once again, reaffirming the same Abrahamic promise that he had given some 40 years earlier uh, in Genesis uh, 12. He says, this is Genesis 22:16. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. See, the Abrahamic promise given in Genesis 22 after Abraham had offered Isaac was a restatement of the original foundational covenant promise that God made with Abraham that affects the whole world. The Abrahamic covenant is foundational to God's plan of the ages. If you understand the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it tells a story that comes full circle, and it all hinges upon this promise in Genesis chapter 12. So I want to try to uh, spend a moment or two explaining the significance of God's covenant promise to Abraham. It starts again in Genesis 12 with God making this promise to Abraham. He said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now this foundational promise 
impacts us today because it has three elements, and we're going to see these elements run through the entire Old Testament all the way up to uh, the, the uh, upper room uh, discourse, in fact. And these elements are land. The promise included specific land boundaries. It included seed. Abraham's descendants would become a great nation. And it also included spiritual blessings. And you see those same three components reiterated after the incident on Mount Moriah when God reiterates the promise, which the writer of Hebrews is talking about, in Genesis 22. Remember, he said, you will possess the gate. That's talking about land and the boundaries uh, that will be involved there. He, he says, you multiplying, I will multiply your descendants. That's a reference to the seed aspect of that original promise. And then he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, referencing the blessing aspect of that foundational promise. So God's covenant promise with Abraham has three components, land, seed, and blessing. And, and then later on, as God's word is revealed in the progress of revelation in the Old Testament, each of those three elements is reiterated through three subsequent covenants that focus only on that one element. So you see along the bottom of the screen here a rudimentary timeline. We've got you know, the Old Testament times in, before the law with Abraham. Then, of course, the Mosaic covenant, which was not an unconditional covenant, but was a rule of law that kind of governed people during the time of Israel and the law. Then, of course, you've got the present church age and ultimately the kingdom, the long-awaited promised kingdom when Christ comes back and makes all things new, rules in perfect peace and righteousness and justice, throws off the shackles of the re revived Roman Empire, defeats the Antichrist and all the things we've been talking about in our Sunday school hour. So these three covenants, these three elements of the Abraham covenant are reiterated through three additional unconditional covenant. Remember, an unconditional covenant is an I will statement. It depends only upon the one giving the covenant. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not an if this, then that. It's a I will. I will do this. And so first we see the land aspect of this covenant reiterated in Genesis chapter 15 and also in Deuteronomy 30, where he actually even gives the boundaries of the land. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now if you actually chart this out on a chart, uh, everything you see in pink there is our best estimate at the actual boundaries of the promised land for Israel. Now, where is Israel today? Remember, Israel was not even a nation for some 1,800 years. They reemerged after World War II, May 15, 1948. That got a lot of people's attention because we know the promise, the unconditional promise of God, that they will have a kingdom someday, and it's going to have these boundaries. Today, this is roughly speaking modern Israel. And that is roughly, by the way. Don't email me later and say, oh, you missed it by 100 miles. Again, this is just a rough estimate, okay? But it's not even close. It's maybe 25% of the land that was promised them. And throughout history, Israel has never to this day occupied the fullness of the land that God promised them. They've had access to it, Joshua tells us that, but they've never physically inhabited all of it. God's word is an unconditional promise that they will have land. But then he reiterates the seed aspect of that foundational covenant through also another unconditional covenant. And this one is what we call the Davidic covenant. Do you remember what he said to David? He said, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That is an unconditional I will statement. 
And how would David have understood that? David understood the meaning of house and kingdom and throne. He had no other context but to understand it literally. And indeed, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, when Solomon eventually builds the temple, this Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7 starts in verse 12, and the first part of it deals with Solomon, David's immediate son, but it clearly goes on to talk about the ultimate son of David, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because he, Solomon is not still on the throne. He didn't sit on the throne forever and ever. But Jesus Christ will when he takes the throne. And so David understood this literally, even though many bad teachers today, I don't mean bad morally, but incorrect teachers today, suggest that the kingdom is somehow spiritual or mystical or non-literal and that Christ is reigning in this you know, metaphorical kingdom in our hearts today. And in so doing, they completely ignore the plain literal meaning of Scripture. Uh, for example, Ezekiel spends nine chapters, nine ch long chapters, in great detail describing the beauty and magnificence of that future temple in which Christ will reign and sit on the throne someday. So you have Solomon's temple. Then it was destroyed, of course, in 586 B.C. I think that's right. And then, uh, and then you had uh, Herod's temple. And then, uh, and, then, and then it was destroyed by uh, the Romans in 70 A.D. And then you have the Tribulation Temple where the Antichrist is going to set up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and demand that everybody worship him. Then that's going to be destroyed at Armageddon. And then the fourth temple, physical temple, is going to be built and it's going to be massively larger than any of the other temples before. So God makes this promise, once again reiterating the the, the seed promise of what he said to Abraham. You're going to have a seed from you, Jesus, ultimately the son of David, is going to take the throne. It's going to have these boundaries. It's going to be a literal physical kingdom. And then he reiterates the spiritual blessing aspect of this kingdom through the new covenant. Now we're going to be talking about the new covenant as we observe the Lord's Supper here at the very end of our service. But Jeremiah the prophet promised that, in, that the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be their, uh, my people. That's a, a phrase in Hebrew that refers to the intimacy and uniqueness of this ultimate relationship when God makes all things new. So the new covenant differs a little bit from the other two in that the land covenant and the Davidic covenant were made in the Old Testament and ratified. The new covenant was promised in the Old Testament. It was not made until the cross. That's the reason Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my, my blood. And so by the time of the cross and the resurrection, the entire covenant program of God has been promised and ratified. But guess what? It has not been inaugurated yet. And, and we know a thing about ratification and inauguration in what we're going through as a country, Right? In a normal year, you have an election, somebody wins, they eventually certify the vote, and then the Electoral College meets and ratifies it, and then in January on the 20th, you take office and the, the inauguration happens and the new administration begins. Well, God's promise, established in the Abrahamic covenant with land, seed, and blessing, reiterated with three subsequent unconditional covenants, the land covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, have now all been put in place. All that awaits is the return of Christ to come back and take the throne. So then you fast forward to the time of Christ, the preeminent event in all of human history when it ratified the new covenant. And following the death and resurrection of Christ, this church is started, which the Bible calls a mystery. It was not something that was foretold in the Old Testament. 
The church age is a, a gap, an intercalation, if you will, between uh, the Old Testament and the kingdom age. And uh, the Bible tells us in Galatians that the law was put in place as a tutor until Christ came. And, uh, and, and we don't need that tutor anymore because we have the law in our hearts, the Spirit. And then he says that this is a dispensation of the grace of God. doesn't mean that grace came into existence with the church age. It just means that the grace is highlighted in high definition like never before because of the cross. In the Old Testament, people understood grace. They saw it in the sacrificial system. They saw it as far back as the sacrifices of, of uh, Abel in the garden. Uh, but it now takes on new meaning as the shadow becomes the substance and everybody understands what we mean by the grace of God. It's a free gift, the giving of His Son, in the same way that Abraham offering Isaac prefigured the ultimate Lamb of God, in the same way that the ram in the thicket prefigured the provision that God would make for the sins of, of mankind. So this is a dispensation where grace is highlighted. And, uh, and in, in this present age, we now find that Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs of that promise, that Abrahamic promise that was given long ago, 2,000 years before Christ, in fact, in Genesis 12. And now we're all heirs of that promise. So guess what? You may not be Jewish, but you and I and all people who know the Lord Jesus are awaiting the fulfillment of that promise when our Master Christ returns. And then Romans 11 tells us that someday the Deliverer is in fact going to come out of Israel. Right now, the, the blindness in part has been happening to Israel, uh, but that doesn't mean God's through with Israel. Some people su suggest today that the church has replaced Israel, that God for forgot or forsaken His promises to Israel, that when He said, I will, I will, I will, He didn't mean it. He said, I might, I might, I might. And because Israel crowned Him with thorns instead of a king's crown, the God said, all bets are off, forget it. Now the church is my new kingdom. And that's what they teach, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that there is a literal future earthly kingdom centered in Israel. It's going to be people of all nations together, but God's chosen nation, the apple of his eye, Israel, is going to be center stage. And Christ is going to rule from the temple in Jerusalem on a literal throne in a literal kingdom uh, with boundaries. So you fast forward to Christ's return, and guess what? All Israel, not just the remnant that's saved today and becomes part of the bride of Christ, but all Israel is delivered into the kingdom when the deliverer, Christ, comes out of Zion. Why? Because this is my covenant, my promise with them. And so this is God's plan of the ages in a nutshell, and it all hinges on the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, the covenant promise, land, seed, and blessing, really constitute the guarantee of the kingdom someday. If you don't believe there's going to be a literal earthly kingdom someday, and by the way, the church is going to be coming back with Christ, riding on white horses, Revelation 19, 11 to 15, to set up the, the government in the kingdom and to rule and reign in the kingdom. Remember, Christ told the disciples, you'll sit on 12 thrones with me in the kingdom. We're going to have positions of authority. That's what Jesus said in Luke 19 as he tells the parable of the minas. And he says, while I'm going away to receive my kingdom, when I come back someday, I'm going to see how you did. How faithful were you in serving me during this present age and spreading the gospel and fellowshipping with other believers and walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh? And those who proved especially faithful are going to be put in charge of ten cities or five cities or whatever it might be. So we're all going to be part of this kingdom when Christ returns. It's a promise. It's a promise. To look at it another way, 
the plan of the ages chart that I've shown you many times shows that we're living in the, in the last days right here, the church age. The only age to come is the kingdom age. And when that time comes, we will experience the inauguration of God's kingdom program. To look at it another way, we could think of God's plan for the universe. And, and it started out with creation, and then the creation of the nations, and then the creation of Israel with Abraham, and then the creation of the church on the creation side. But then, of course, what happened? Because of the fall of man, we have to see redemption, because all of creation is corrupt. And so we see the redemption of the church at the rapture, the restoration of Israel at the return of Christ, the retribution of the nations at the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments that we talked about in the first hour, and then the redemption of all of creation when Christ destroys the old heavens and the new earth and recreates them in sinless perfection. And along the way, God has a plan for, for all of the created universe. He has a plan for the salvation of individual man. He has a plan for the nation of Israel. He has a plan for the church, the bride of Christ. He has a plan for angels. He has a plan for demons. Remember, Jesus said the everlasting fire was created for the devil and his angels. But all of this works together to usher in God's kingdom promise. And the writer of Hebrews is, is reminding his readers, and by extension us today, of this Abrahamic promise because it's central to God's plan of the ages. It's just as real to us today as it was to those first century Jewish Christians who were being persecuted under Nero. First given some 2,000 years before Christ, some 4,000 years ago from our perspective, that promise should motivate us to keep trusting God, keep waiting. Christ has not come back yet. He could come back today. First, to meet Him in the air at the rapture. 1 Thess 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thess 2, John 14. A lot of passages that talk about the rapture. And then after the tribulation period, to come back to establish His kingdom on earth. As I've said many times, one-sixth of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. There's a lot yet to come. And the writer here is motivating us in, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to focus on those promises as we face difficulty. But not only do we see the Abrahamic promise, in the next three verses we see the absolute positivity. The absolute positivity. The promise God gave to Abraham, indeed all of God's promises, are rock solid, guaranteed. You can take it to the bank. As I said, this is not true of most promises today. We live in an age of broken promises. An era where words are meaningless, agreements are made to be broken, contracts have loopholes, right? But not so with God. Notice how the writer goes on to describe this in verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. You know, some things never change, and as it is today, so it was back in the first century. When a person wants to end an argument, one way to do so is to appeal to a higher authority with an oath. They might say, for example, I, I'm telling the truth, so help me God. Or I'm telling the truth, I swear on my mother's grave. Or I tell the truth, I, you know, and they, they appeal to some higher or perceived higher, greater oath. And the writer says, God kind of did the same thing, didn't he? Even God used an oath to guarantee his promise to bless Abraham. He says, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. Who's that? The recipients of the book of Hebrews originally, and you and I today, those who are still waiting for the return of our Lord. 
determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of his promise the immutability of his counsel. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Immutability, unchanging nature. That God's word cannot fail. God's counsel cannot change. And so determining to show it more abundantly, he confirmed it by an oath. Well, what's he talking about? Well, we looked at it a moment ago in Genesis 22. That's exactly what God did. When he reiterated the promise to Abraham after he offered Isaac, he said, by myself I have sworn. God cannot swear to anything higher than himself, the creator of the universe, so he swore by himself. Now back to our text in verse 18. So therefore, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. We might have strong consolation. So God gave Abraham basically double assurance, didn't he? He would deliver what he promised. He gave him, first of all, the assurance of the promise of a God who cannot lie. But then on top of that, he added the special guarantee of an oath. So the two unchangeable, the two immutable things here are God's promise, and God can't lie, and his oath. When he said, by myself I have sworn. So God's strong promise to Abraham then can be a great encouragement to us today because God has also promised us future blessings in the kingdom. And like the first century Christians, we can lay hold of the hope set before us. Notice what he says here. We have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. That's a great motivator. There are many other motivators to trust God and keep believing God and live by faith. But this is a pretty powerful one. And this little figure that the, the writer paints here is, is kind of an Old Testament figure. He uses, that, uses these Old Testament figures a lot because he was dealing with Jews who had become Christians. In our times to, uh, to give of temptation in which we want to give up, or even worse, apostatize, like we talked about in the last message, he said, we can flee to the promises of God. We can take hold of them the same way in the Old Testament times a person in trouble or in danger or afraid of something could flee to the altar of burnt offerings and take hold of its horns and be safe from his assailants. It was a refuge. In fact, they had whole cities of refuge in the Old Testament times that provided safety. But the writer says, we have an even better refuge than the Israelites did. We're not going to a physical altar and hanging onto the horns and say, you can't get me, I'm, I'm protected. We're actually going to none other than God himself in the person and work of his son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to lay hold of the hope of the Abrahamic promise that is absolutely positive and guaranteed in Christ. So unlike Hachi's master, who despite his best intentions... He was unable to fulfill his promise to return. Our immutable God can be counted on. His promises are certain and guaranteed. So we've seen the Abrahamic promise, absolute positivity, and then the final two verses in this section, we see the abiding peace. The abiding peace. What's the result of God's promise? How does it motivate us to stand firm in troubling waters? Well, that hope set before us that we just talked about in verse 18 serves as an anchor for our lives. And boy, who doesn't need an anchor today? 
I felt particularly turbulent the last several days, just with things happening and restrictions coming down and, and just feel like, well, there's really no true north anymore. But there is. There is. I, I confess I felt that way, but there is. And that is God's work. So he says in verse 19, this hope, we have hope there is not actually in the original text. It's referring back to the hope that, he, that is set before us. So this we have, the hope that is set before us, as an anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. I think I'm going to come back to this verse more next week, by the way. I'm not 100% sure yet, but I just, there's so much in this one verse I couldn't really fit it into this section. But he says, This hope we have as the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. Even Jesus. There's a real powerful illustration here. In the first century, sailors would carry a ship's anchor to the shore on a small rowboat, and they would deposit it there, and that's how the ship would, the ship would, would not drift away when the waves were kind of coming in and out. Well, similarly, the writer's painting a picture here of Jesus Christ who entered heaven at his ascension. He took our hope of future reward and the hope of the Abrahamic promise of a kingdom with him, and he deposited it securely in heaven as our anchor to help us when we face the storms of life. And that hope, that anchor, should keep us from drifting away from the Lord, like many in the first century had already done, and frankly, many today are doing when they face tragic difficulties. The anchor, the anchor of our soul. You know, researchers have uncovered at least 66 pictures of anchors that appear on the walls of the catacombs under Rome indicating that an anchor was a very popular symbol of Christianity back in the day. And that should be our abiding peace, our anchor. What, what, what is your abiding peace tethered to as you face the storm? Are you standing on the promises? Do we, do we look forward to meeting our Savior with great enthusiasm, the way Hachi anticipated the return of his Master? Or... Have we long ago given up? The writers, the, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews were on the cusp of making a, a wrong decision. The Jesus who saved them, they began to convince themselves, was not capable of sustaining them in the midst of persecution. But He is. He is. And it's that promise of a future kingdom that is guaranteed that should motivate us to hold our heads high no matter what may come our way. So here's the takeaway. Pretty simple. Hang on and hold firm because you can count on God's promises. You can count on them. So in just a moment, we're going to close out our service together with the Lord's Supper and a closing hymn. And, you know, it just worked out this way. This isn't something we plan. I don't, I do, I'm doing these messages week to week. I don't even have an outline yet for next week. Um, but it, here we are, and the Spirit of God worked it out that we're talking about the, the ultimate Abrahamic promise that was ratified at, at Calvary, and, and we're going to be celebrating that new covenant today. And, you know, uh, I'm going to pray in a moment, and when I do, I want to ask you all to, to pray and prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper. And while I'm praying, maybe if the men will come forward and, and be in position to, to distribute the elements. But one of the things that I really want you to focus on this morning as we take the Lord's Supper is not just looking back 
at the sacrifice of Calvary. That's part of it. But that's not the whole reason for the Lord's Supper. Every time the Lord's Supper is mentioned in Scripture, it has a forward-looking element too. Why? Because it's, it's to be done until I come. Jesus said, do this until I come. Do this until I come. Why won't we be observing the Lord's Supper in the kingdom? Because it'll all have been inaugurated, right? We won't be counting votes anymore in the kingdom. We're not going to be, you know, looking at hanging chads or pulling hard drives out of computers to figure out how many votes they added to one side or the other. It'll be done. So as you think about the Lord's Supper this morning, first of all, pray and prepare your hearts. And again, we invite anyone who's part of the body of Christ that knows Jesus as their Savior to participate with us. Think about both the, the sweetness of our Savior and His sacrifice for our sins, but also think about the promise of His return. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You for just Your Word and uh, for uh, the promise of Scripture that we so often overlook because, well, to be honest, we get tired of waiting. But Lord, help us to become acquainted afresh today with the promise you gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago and to look up and be watchful knowing that our redemption is drawing nigh. And Lord, as we partake of the elements now, I pray that it would just be a meaningful time in each of our lives as we evaluate our own hearts, make things right with you, prepare to tackle the, the days and weeks to come and uh, enjoy this sweet moment of, of unity around uh, the communion table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.